have been uh, thanked and honored uh, as is appropriate. Um, we, I found out just a few days ago that uh, our son would be with us uh, this weekend for Mother's Day. We're very, very glad to have him. But I do want to say that a couple of weeks ago, I decided I was going to be preaching on this passage, and I also had an, an opening illustration already set, and it has something to do with him. So I have asked him, if I may say this, and he has said yes, just like last Sunday night, I did ask Ezra if I could use the illustration at that time, and he said yes. That's the way it works. If you, I will not say anything about you unless I ask permission, with the exception of my wife. Now, why is that? She, she would like to be asked, and it would be a good thing, but she's also said, whatever you say, I'm sure it will be helpful, and if it, and if it puts me in less than the absolute highest light, well then, I can use a little humbling. How's that for a mom of our kids? Um, Turn with me to the last chapter of Matthew, and we'll read a very uh, significant passage um, that shapes uh, our world uh, purpose, our purpose in the world. Um, This is not going to be an expository sermon. We'll start there, but we will be um, reflecting specifically on themes that are drawn from the Scripture as outlined in the larger confession. Larger catechism, excuse me. Matthew chapter 28, uh, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even uh, to the end of this age. Um, a number of years ago, I um, went into my son's apartment. Uh, Gail and I went into our son's apartment in Brooklyn, um, and it was nice to see where he lived and what, was, what it was like. Um, but went into his bedroom, and there um, on the bedroom wall, right next to where he rests his head to sleep, there was a picture. And I was in that picture, and Gail was in that picture. And he was in that picture as a little baby. And Elder Higgins was in that picture. And my father was in that picture. And it was a picture of him, my son, on the day that he was baptized. Um, Sometime later, um, well, in fact, fact, he told me that just now uh, that picture has been moved uh, to his the top of his bureau, but the point of it is, you can see it when he wakes up, he sees it when he goes to sleep, and it becomes a vivid reminder of an identity. 
He is, Zachary Thomas is, most of the rest of us are, the baptized ones. We are those who have been baptized. And for all of you, it is important to keep your baptism in view, as if you had put a picture on your wall as well. Keep it close. It reminds you of who you are, regardless of how you feel on any particular day. By the grace of God, you have been given, did you notice it? You have been given the name of Jesus. For the first time now in 40 years of ministry, I asked the parents, having a child baptized, what is the name of your child? And the larger catechism really prompted me to that because it is saying you are, you are taking on a new name. The name of Jesus Christ. Zachary Thomas's name is Zachary Thomas in Christ. This is what improving uh, our baptism uh, is all about. This is, this is a, a phrase from larger catechism uh, number 167. Uh, which asks this question, how is baptism to be improved by us? It is not that any baptism is defective or deficient, but having been baptized, we can improve on it in our own lives. And it goes on to say this, the needful but much neglected duty of of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life Long. Oftentimes, when we think about baptism, we think about, well, the way we do it. We baptize babies, consistent with the teaching of Scripture. That's better than some others do. We can feel somewhat proud about that if we're inclined to. Others have the attitude that when a person is baptized, it's like one and done. You just don't, you don't think about it anymore. Or maybe it's magic dust in the form of water to get someone into heaven but has very little present-day value. But as our catechism reminds us, and the purpose for which Christ has given to us, it is a key part of a lifelong discipleship process. We say in one way or another, to our children, you are a baptized person. Your identity. Martin Luther Um, struggled with temptation throughout much of his his early life, even following his his coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he he said, as our catechism speaks of, it is useful for, for battling temptation. He would say, Martin Luther, baptized man in the face of of the battles from, from darkness. And you arm yourself. I am a baptized person. When I deal with temptation, for example, you encourage others who may be depressed or sad or discouraged. You are a baptized person. And that will make sense as we unfold this today. The Great Commission, of course, is for, it instructs us and empowers us for the worldwide mission of the church. And the key is making disciples. You could read it this way. Therefore, going... 
make disciples, that's the main verb, make disciples, and then two participles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The main verb is make disciples, and the two uh, supporting participles, baptizing and teaching. That's how we make disciples. And notice as well, as we read it, and as we refer to this in the instructions in the baptism, the central command to the church, central command to parents, is wrapped up in the authority and the presence of Jesus. We are spurred on by Christ's authority, so we must do it. All authority given to me. So we must do this. But a key part as well is that we are sustained by Christ's presence. You can do this. I am with you until the end. So baptism is the start of discipleship. It is a one-time event, but it is not then put on the shelf. As it were, you can take a picture of it in your mind's eye and to remember it and poke that in in it by a thumbtack above your bed. You go back to it. You go back to that picture. I want us to consider this morning um, improving our baptism uh, by claiming uh, your new name, uh, by trusting in um, God's gospel, and, and by not neglecting baptism, but using it, using it in our own, our own discipleship. Well, in claiming, in claiming your new name, um, there are some cultures that, uh, of course, name their child at, at birth. But then when the child is baptized, they give a Christian name. And you will re- recall that when uh, Danielle and uh, Jesse brought uh, Zachary up here, they just had his name, Zachary Thomas. And that's the name in which he was baptized. But the point is, that was the name into which he was baptized, the name of the triune God. The Catechism says powerfully that you uh, have given up your name to Christ as you are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've given up your name, your previous identity, but now you are a person in Christ. Zachary Thomas Rao in Christ is his full name. Now, it is not that the water of baptism changes you. Of course, we know that it does not. It doesn't cleanse your heart. It doesn't cleanse you. It doesn't give you a new heart or cleanse you of sin, but it does identify you. It identifies you, as Paul says, as one who is holy in the Lord, holy and set apart and therefore included in the people of God. In the beauty of the covenant, God's, uh, God's covenant with us children are brought under Christ's authority and are given his presence as well. Children in our homes are under Christ's authority and, and his presence is with us as well. The baptism then calls our children to live each day of their lives as someone who is in Christ. To remember that picture on the wall, to remember the full name, Zachary Thomas Rao in Christ. So we're improving our baptism by remembering our new name, but that leads us really to the point of trusting in God's gospel. 
And baptism is not about what we do, but it is about what God does. It is not a statement of, I have faith. It is not a statement of, I am coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a statement that I am committing myself to a life of obedience. That's not what baptism is. It is instead a statement uh, by God of what he does. It is not meant to draw attention to us or even our decision but it is instead pointing to our being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, just like all the other little boys of faithful Jewish parents. But his real baptism, the the circumcision rather, to which his first circumcision pointed, was his being cut, his flesh being cut on the cross. He was crucified. He was pierced. He bled for us. That's his circumcision. In your place and in your judgment. And so we seize our gospel blessings. We seize our gospel blessings as they are, as they are summarized in the catechism. It goes, it's something like the Jesus broke the condemnation and the rule of sin. He bled and he died for you and for me. He took our condemnation upon himself. And so this is how the catechism describes it. So you, as you improve on your baptism, you are taking your eyes off of yourself. You are gluing them to Jesus. And you are therefore, these are the words of the the catechism, growing up in the assurance of the pardon of your sins. You're growing up in the assurance of pardon. As you look away from self and look to Christ. Secondly, the, the, the Holy Spirit is growing you up, becoming stronger uh, in Christ and in particular in his death and his resurrection. The Holy Spirit is persuading, that, that, persuading you that in your union with Christ, you not only died on the cross, not only were your sins removed, but you were buried in a tomb. You were buried with him. Or in Him. You were buried there. But then God also made you alive on that first Easter morning. You were raised to a new life. You are, you are, uh, you are growing in this realization of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing the Catechism says about, about improving on your baptism is that you are, you are to, you are being called, because you have the same blood, you are being called to walk in brotherly love as, as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. We, as members of the church, not as members of each, of one another's nuclear family, but in the church, we share the same blood having been cleansed by it. Well, then, we improve, thirdly, we improve our baptism uh, not by neglecting this tool, but using it. And that's what we want to spend the rest of our time with today. Um, Not neglecting this tool, but using it, and so we will improve our baptisms. The very first thing that the Catechism says about the benefits of baptism or the uses of baptism to improve it, 
is to fight temptation. Top of the list, fight temptation. By remembering that picture on the wall, we remember that we have been baptized and we have a new identity in Jesus. And that new identity protects you from yourself and protects you from darkness. It protects you from yourself. You and I have, have recurring patterns of sin, sin that we are tempted to. You and I have indulgences that we allow ourselves to be seduced by. We do. Perhaps it is um, by our appetites, uh, whether it is food or whether it is drink or whether it is sex, whether it is money, whether it is convenient convenience, we indulge ourselves. How do you fight temptation with your knowledge of or remembering that you have been baptized? You fight temptation by speaking, addressing, as Psalm 103 instructs us to do, instruct your soul with the benefits of the gospel. And the first one is, soul, you are baptized. You are a new person. Therefore, the sin to which you are tempted is not who you really are. It is not. And significantly, it is not what you truly want. That's what your baptism tells you. You are seduced, perhaps, to be angry at a a family member. That's not who you are. You have the same blood. You have an impulse in that direction, but that's not who you are, and that's truly not what you want. A pastor friend of mine recently walked away from his wife, his children, and his church to get in bed with another woman, a friend of mine in the OPC. We are seduced, we are blinded, we are duped. As the proverb said, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. We are dupes. We are often seduced. We are blinded. And it's not just in big areas like we've just described. I have that same problem in the area of food. I think I may have told you that before. So I actually have written down on one of my prayer cards that I look at each time when I'm going through my stack of prayers, I I, I have written down on my card, fatty foods are heavy and gross. I have to write it down and remember and pray about it because when I see some fatty foods, I don't think they're heavy and gross. They just look good. So we need to be reminded of what is true. Baptism calls you back to the sanity of Jesus. 
Baptism then will protect you from yourself, but it also protects you from darkness. Luther's biggest temptation was his despair, the despair of disbelief, disbelief in the forgiveness of sins. He was tormented by accusation. And in his mind, uh, the, uh, the, the darkness um, uh, just, just corrupted his understanding of the gospel. And he, he had, in this sense, that the gospel couldn't really be as good as what, it say, what the Bible says it is. So this is something that he would, he, would re- he would tell, he's told his students, this is how you are to guide your own heart when you're tempted. The law, of course, looks at, uh, holds us up to a standard we can't permanently keep, uh, and, and failures can rule us, and, 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 um, and, and we can become desperate and without hope and without joy. And this is what he said regarding the, 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 the law as, a, as a, a, a means to condemn us. It says, know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior and Lord of my life. For I am baptized. And through the gospel, I am called to receive righteousness and eternal life. So trouble me not, for I will not allow you to so intolerable a tyrant and tormentor to reign in my heart and my conscience, for they are the seat and the temple of Christ, the Son of God. I am a baptized man. The righteousness of Christ, the freedom from condemnation, can lift that pall, Luther tells us. We use baptism then to fight temptation, but we can also, and very specifically, use baptism and apply it to raising our children. So this is for parents, but this is also for kids as we're going through this. And for workers in the church, all of us, of course. But you improve your baptism um, in, the, in, in these ways as you raise your own children. First of all, you help them grow into a new identity. You help them... Uh, Zachary doesn't get it today. All he gets is that he's hungry and wants mom. That's about all he gets. But you raise your child uh, in order uh, to help them grow into their identity as one who belongs to Christ, who has his name. And one of the ways, most prominently, that we do that is by leading our children in prayer and the, from the time that they are very, very young. And we are teaching them to, to lisp their prayers as soon as they can say mama and dada. They are praying as, as soon as they are speaking. Because they're in the church. Because they belong to Jesus. We teach them to pray. We show them that the Bible is addressed to them. We, we take advantage of, of a bookshelf on, in the back there that has books that they can, that they can, can, can put their grubby little fingers on and, and, and see these big slippery pages and, and, and read excerpts of the scripture in, in, in a way that is packaged well for them. Thank you, Julia Cummings. We teach them by these things as we teach them the scripture that Jesus is their authority but always for their good and we teach them as baptized one to trust them, to trust him and to love and to obey their savior. We help them grow into their new identity. Secondly, we do leave, we do leave it to the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. Remember, he works, he works how uh, when and how and where he pleases. Oftentimes, 
as is in the case of our family, there were a couple of our kids who never could identify a time when they did not know and trust Jesus. And that often is the case. Grow up knowing, not, when, not, uh, not knowing the time that they actually believed. It was just part, it was in the atmosphere. They grew up trusting in Christ. And others of our children will have what we would call a crisis conversion. I remember, Gail and I remember vividly one of our daughters sitting on the edge of her bed just weeping her eyes out saying, I can't do it! I can't live the Christian life! And she was a little befuddled when Gail and I just went into doing flips and celebrating and saying, yeah, you can't! Jesus came for sinners! Admit you are one! And grab a hold of him! In any case, in any case, We trust in the work of the Spirit how, when, and where He pleases. Trust in His work and keep displaying the patience of Christ. Parents, keep praying with patience and persistence. Raise your children under the Gospel. Improve their baptism by, by, by helping them fight temptation and raising them in this new identity. And one thing we need to remember then is that we must have age-appropriate discipline. Um, I, I, I have sometimes seen uh, moms and dads uh, addressing a two-year-old in something, something like this. Now, you really don't want to hit your sibling now, do you? Don't, don't you really want instead to be kind and considerate? You don't really want to smear oatmeal on the wall, do you? That, that is not the way you talk to a two-year-old. You give commands. Help them to understand they are under the authority of Christ. The crazy part about it is when our kids get older, sometimes we, uh, we, we are not able uh, to gently persuade them or persuade them with truth, but we resort to just, to just throwing out commands because we're frustrated and we seek to sh- uh, shape older kids with threats and force. No, when our children are young, we give them that, uh, we exercise that Christ-given authority and when they're older, we influence them. We don't reverse the two. You don't influence a two-year-old with conversation. Neither, however, uh, do you force an older child simply with authority. We are training our young ones to obey simple commands. We are training them um, with consistent discipline. And we are not simply depending on their obedience when we raise our voice. Uh, they should respond to your voice and not your irritation. They should respond to the words that you use and not just because you're bigger than they are and you're getting angry with them. You need to, you need to practice discipline, not just simply raising your voice. Now, when the child gets older, you influence their heart, you shape their heart, not just their behavior. And I think it is important for you to talk about the struggle that is in the heart, that your children are not unique. 
They, they are a new person with a new master, and they have new desires. All of that is in the gospel. But they are also seduced by sin. They are deceived, and, and, and they, they can even justify being disrespectful to their parents or other authorities. They can justify being cruel to peers. And your job, as your children are growing up in their junior high years, is to help them put a break on those sinful desires. And to help them to see, even in the midst of that turmoil that's going, that Roman 7 turmoil that's going on in their hearts, that is not who I am. I may feel that way sometimes, but that is not who I am. A friend of mine in our old church used to tell me that um, whenever he as a, a young junior high and high school kid was left the house, his, his father said this. He said, remember who you are and whose you are. And that's a great thing to remember as, as parents of a way to speak uh, to our children. Now this, doesn't, this next point does not have anything to do really with dealing with sin in our children's lives. It has to do instead with shaping the identity of our children bearing Christ's name. How do you do that? How do you shape an identity, not just as a forgiven sinner, but now as a whole person, a created person in this world bearing Christ's name? Your child is in Christ. That is, he is in the name of Christ, but he is also in the image of Christ. And that is good. That is good to be in, have his name and to be in his image. Some time ago, um, some friends, uh, in, actually in my extended family, um, I had asked them the question, what is, why is it that, I know you, brought, you were brought up in a Christian family, why is it that you are not walking uh, as a Christian these days? And this is part of the story that they told. They were in a family that was very musically gifted. Um, they all were either singers or they played instruments in wonderful, wonderful ways. And their parents had taught them uh, that it was, it was improper for the parents to praise them for their gifts. They, would, they were in danger of becoming proud. So as the parents trained them, they didn't praise them. They didn't want them to be proud. They didn't, so they, they didn't honor them in that respect. They didn't draw attention to that gift. This is, what, this is what Calvin says about this. Who knew that Calvin's Institutes could be a manual for raising kids? Just listen to this. Calvin says, Regard highly whatever gifts of God we see in other people, which would include our children. Regard highly whatever gifts of God we see in other people, so honor those in whom they reside. It would be a great depravity on our part to deprive those who bear those gifts of the honor which the Lord has bestowed on them. Sometimes we're reluctant to give praise to other people, even when we see gifts in them. Paul says you honor the Lord and, your, and that person when you draw attention to it for the glory of God and the encouragement of that person. So what does that mean? That means you look for areas of giftedness in your children. One of the coolest things about being a parent was to look for areas of giftedness. Look for the goodness that, they're, that they, they, uh, the Lord is enabling them to do. They are helpful to their mother. They are, they are compassionate to their, to their siblings. 
you look for those things. You look for areas in which they show kindness, that they're thinking of others, helping around the house, whatever they are. And you draw that to their attention with, with thankfulness. And you ascribe it, not to their being great people on their own. You don't need to do that. But you say, as, a, as someone in Christ, after the image of Christ, we see the Spirit's work in you and we thank God for that. Shaping their identity as children bearing Christ's name. And if you fail to do that with your children, I think is what happened with my friends. The Spirit was quenched without that honoring of God and honoring of His gifted children. And finally, you improve the baptism of your children by, as the Catechism ends this section, walking in brotherly love. You, you in, in your family, uh, I will go out on a limb here, but I will say in your family, you probably sin publicly against other family members. That is in a visible way. That would be my supposition for the day. I'm not in your home, but I suspect that as in ours, there are sins publicly committed against one another. And when they are committed, you must repair them with the blood. You don't ignore them. You don't just forget about them. You don't pretend they didn't happen and just say, oh, it'll blow over. You repair that with the blood of Jesus. If you, if you don't bring the blood of Jesus into your efforts and your failures of walking in brotherly love, you are actually teaching your children to believe that Jesus didn't die for their sins. You're teaching them to deal with sins in another way. And so, as again, as I can hear my dad saying this, echoing in the back of my mind from the, from the confession of faith, um, confess, repent of particular, main accent, repent of particular sins particularly. Be specific. Name it. And then forgive one another. Actually forgive. And if delight hasn't returned, you still need to go back to the fount of forgiveness. Improving your baptism is the best way to lead in improving your children's baptism. Finally and briefly, just discipling other people. You and I talk to just, you and I both talk to discouraged people. You and I deal with people who have darkness within them and darkness that comes from outside. You and I talk to willful people who are deceived by their own desires. You and I both talk to people who have wandered away from the church and are no longer part of a worshiping community. Help them. Rescue them. Remind them that they are a baptized one connected to Jesus and therefore his body. Connected to Jesus, therefore the sins that plague them can be dealt with firmly at the cross. Rescue them with these words, you are a baptized one.
Now, maybe you are here today and you have been baptized or not, but you have not started improving on your baptism. And so far for you, it's just a symbol. Jesus stands waiting today to welcome you home for the forgiveness of sins and the glad attendance in God's, among God's people. Start today. Trust your Savior and walk out in faith. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.